Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We will help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We will share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Alyssa. I'm Margaret. I'm Kate. I'm Nithya. The book for our discussion today is Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Let's start with an excerpt from the Amazon description. Four-time number one New York Times best-selling author Brene Brown found that leaders in organizations ranging from small entrepreneurial startups and family-owned businesses to nonprofits, civic organizations, and Fortune 50 companies all ask the same question. How do you cultivate braver, more daring leaders? And how do you embed the value of courage in your culture? In this new book, Brown uses research, stories, and examples to answer these questions in the no BS style that millions of readers have come to expect and love. Brown writes, one of the most important findings of my career is that daring leadership is a collection of four skill sets that are 100% teachable, observable, and measurable. It's learning and unlearning that requires brave work, tough conversations, and showing up with your whole heart. Whether you've read Daring Greatly and Rising Strong, or you're new to Brene Brown's work, this book is for anyone who wants to step up and into brave leadership. I was first introduced to Brene Brown when a colleague shared the YouTube video that animates her talk on empathy. The cartoon describes the idea of empathy as a vulnerable choice to feel with someone. And I remember really being struck by the statement, rarely if ever does an empathic response begin with at least. Once I heard it, it was so simple and obvious, and that's a big part of what draws me to her books. She articulates these broad concepts and things we may even know instinctively in ways that are easy to understand and she gives us straightforward actions we can take to become more daring leaders. The way she outlines daring leadership as skill sets that are 100% teachable, observable, and measurable makes me very optimistic. It's saying that it's hard work, but it's doable, and there's nothing soft about it. That's something else that I like. In the work that we do, sometimes we get classified as working with soft skills, and she makes it clear that there's nothing mushy about this. The way she stresses the importance of it and that these skills are learnable is something that really draws me in. The book is divided into four parts covering those four skill sets. Rumbling with vulnerability, living into our values, braving trust, and learning to rise. I know we could spend an entire discussion on any one of these main topics. Each one is rich with concepts, exploration, and specific tools. So let's start with vulnerability. When talking about the courage to be vulnerable, Brene Brown says, it's about the courage to show up when you can't predict or control the outcome. This can be a very unsettling idea for many people. And she describes six misguided myths about vulnerability that persist. So to start our discussion, Kate, Nithya, what was your initial reaction to the idea of vulnerability? Which of the six myths most resonated with you? Well, I'll jump in to get started. The idea of vulnerability, prior to my exposure to Brene's work, 
was similar to something she describes in the book, actually, about some leaders who assume that vulnerability means sharing personal details about our lives, facts, things, and getting personal. I will admit that before I started doing the work that I do now, I associated vulnerability with that. And in my work, I come across many leaders who say the same thing. I don't want to be vulnerable at work or as a leader. I don't want to talk about my kids or tell people about my health issues. And so turning that on its head to define vulnerability the way that Brene Brown does was a major learning for me. Yeah, that piece about vulnerability being disclosure is one that I have run into quite a lot over the last few years. I'm working with a lot of people who are in that place of, I'm learning to be vulnerable, so now I'm telling everybody all of my dirty laundry and trying to figure out what it is to be vulnerable wisely and not in an oversharing manner has actually been a really rich set of questions to delve into with them. It's not where I started with Brene Brown's work. When I started uh, hearing Brene Brown's work, the first thing that came to me was, I don't do vulnerability. I was in that place like, I, I don't even know what vulnerability is. I don't even know what this word means. What is this thing? You know, I was raised to be stoic and to grin and bear everything. And I don't do vulnerability was absolutely my wall. But what I realized when I met Brene Brown's work is I do shame, or at least I used to do shame really hard. And my habit of self-shaming was really, really deeply ingrained. And so the fact that Brene Brown started by studying shame and landed on the antidote to shame is vulnerability, I realized I had to start dealing with vulnerability. Yeah, it's it's interesting that both of you kind of started with the with the myth number six of, you know, kind of the oversharing. And I think that is a way that some people can kind of overcorrect. They don't know what vulnerability is, so they kind of make it up and they start doing it. Then they overdo it and say, well, I'm gonna just let everybody know everything about me and I think that's a really interesting lesson for people to learn about what vulnerability is and what it isn't. I'm wondering about your experiences around trust and vulnerability with myth number five being trust comes before vulnerability. That one definitely resonated with me, Alyssa, because even once as a leader, I had reshaped my own relationship to vulnerability and understood that it's not just about disclosure and that we're not islands and we do need other people and it's a strength to lean into other people and be vulnerable. The primary thing that was holding me back is this idea that I'll be vulnerable with those that I trust and that trust has to come first. And the way Brene Brown describes that they actually operate in parallel and go hand in hand, that yes, you do need some trust to be vulnerable, but in turn, vulnerability builds trust. Uh, was a really interesting learning and and a way to put it that was not something I was used to previously. The way she describes the marble jar story is particularly moving. The way she talks about trust isn't one giant heroic thing that someone has to do in order for them to earn it from you. It's actually a collection of small things. Trust is earned in the smallest of decisions, words, actions, and moments, much like putting individual marbles into a jar until before you know it, your jar is pretty full with someone. 
I really liked that because it takes a little bit of the pressure off of vulnerability and says that as long as we as leaders are building trust in those small moments with others and letting others do the same, we can be vulnerable with them. Yeah. I've started thinking about trust and vulnerability as a spiral that can deepen. If you lead with a little bit of trust, that can inspire a little bit of somebody feeling safe to be vulnerable. That also builds a little bit of trust, increases the ability to go to the vulnerable space, increases trust. Uh, I think of it these days a lot like flirting, where (laughs) you're attracted to somebody and you want to sort of test the waters and see if you get a smile back if you smile at them. And that a well-done dance of flirtation is a slow, incremental opening up to the point of asking someone on a date. And I think of that as a, a great metaphor. You can do that in a business setting when you're talking to a potential new client or someone who is newly on board. How do you build those conversations one moment at a time so you get closer and closer to, all right, now let's rumble with the really hard stuff. Now, Kate, if I can just build off of that point around trust in the workplace. I also really liked a little bit later on after talking about the myths when Brene Brown mentions the sliding doors analogy. And I'm reminded of it based on what you're saying, because we have these choices as leaders that we can make in any given moment in the workplace. We have the choice to keep walking and say, this is not the moment for me to be vulnerable. This is not a moment to build connection. I'm just going to keep going about my day in autopilot mode. Or much like the movie Sliding Doors, if those of you listening are familiar, where an entire story, an entire relationship with another human being can change in one instant if we choose to make a different decision. That really struck me because as you say, it is a dance. And the dance depends on sometimes us taking the first move without really knowing what's going to happen. And often an entire relationship can be defined by what that first step is and who chooses to take that first step. And do we take advantage of this moment, like in the Sliding Doors movie, or, or do we not? And I would say that Brene Brown argues more often than not, take advantage of those moments and take that first step in the dance. Yeah, I would agree. I love the spiral analogy. And I also think that it's such an interesting reframe for a lot of people, at least it was for me, to think about the idea of trust being built in these small moments, that it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. And at the same time, you don't have to kind of bank your feelings and show them in some grand gesture. I know in the workplace, I talk with people about that idea of just doing what you say you're going to do builds trust. At the same time, if something comes up and you're not going to make a deadline, being forthcoming with that builds trust. So reframing that idea of what it means to be vulnerable and to build trust and to know that it is created in those marble jar moments, it doesn't have to be this grand gesture. I think anytime this topic of trust in the workplace comes up, you get kind of the farce picture of the trust falls and those kinds of things. I love the way she just makes it so much simpler than that. And the idea that it does take effort and the idea of, are you a person who trusts until given a reason not to, or doesn't trust until given a reason to trust, I love the example of I'm not going to meet a deadline. And so I proactively am forthcoming about the fact that I'm not going to meet a deadline being a vulnerable moment that is trust building because it also makes the connection to shame, which is such an important part of the history of how Bernie Brown developed all these ideas. Because that moment when you've overcommitted 
and you're not going to be able to do something or external circumstances have changed and you're not going to be able to finish something. That moment of, I said I would do something and I'm not going to be able to, can very easily turn into a shame spiral, but can also be a place of going, okay, I need to be real and I don't know how it's going to be taken. It may be that this is actually going to have ripple effects that are not going to be pleasant for me. Yep. Having that courage to show up when you can't predict or control the outcome. Now, one of the challenges in doing that for leaders is that we're not traditionally rewarded for this type of behavior in the workplace. Given that not only emotional stoicism, but being right and always being right and having it together, quote unquote, is what's generally rewarded. And Brene Brown mentions another kind of behavior that's traditionally rewarded in the book, which is that distinction between preventing systemic vulnerability while having um, relational vulnerability. That is a challenge in itself, which is to say, well, that what I'm paid to do every day and what I'm, why I show up every day is to make sure everything works all the time, all systems are in order, all cylinders are firing, whatever your industrial equivalent is. And so it can be a real mindset shift for leaders to understand why you can do that in your day-to-day job and be vulnerable. I myself find that there are situations where a leader might genuinely be worried about whether they will be judged or be punished in some way for that. However, I think that's, that's the challenge and that's the fun of it. That's what getting into the arena and getting dirty and getting some blood on your face, as she says, I think that's what it's about is because you don't know how you'll be received. And I think that's also sort of why it's so important to build cultures that embrace this kind of relationship with each other. The culture can be committed to learning and growing and facing the hard truths or to covering up things so that the people who are concerned about it look right and have the answers all the time. And one of the things I really like in this book, especially closer to the end, she tells tales on herself and the way that she works with her team when she isn't living up to her commitments and they call her on it. And because she's committed to this work, she's built a team where as the leader, it's really important to her that she make a place where they can call her on the stuff that she's not doing accurately. And that I think is a really, really powerful takeaway that having the leaders building a culture can make the whole thing work more effectively. Absolutely. And I know that's going to be a recurring theme of ours in anything we talk about is taking on leadership behaviors and leadership mindsets in a way that also then cascade a culture of leadership. And another one of the things that she talks about is this idea of wholeheartedness. And the idea of wholeheartedness being about integrating our our thinking, feeling, and behavior. And I know a lot of times still that word feeling even can start to put up some walls. I love her whole conversation about choosing daring leadership over armored leadership and what that means. And I think, Nithya, going back to some of the things that you were saying, I think there has been this expectation of armored 
leadership. And daring leadership is just a whole different way of thinking about it. There's always some aspect of power when we discuss leadership. And daring leadership, as she writes about it, involves a different power framework that I found really interesting and wanted to talk about for a couple of minutes about these three elements of power with, power to, and power within. Wanted to just hear a little bit about what you thought of those three elements and as a power framework for leadership, as opposed to what we hear very often about power over. Yeah, I think that the lovely piece about thinking about power differently is that it gives us new options because we all want to feel powerful. Uh, And it doesn't really matter where we are in an organizational agency. We want to feel like we're having an impact and we have the power to do things and the power to accomplish things. And the leadership model of power over of the I tell you what to do and then you do it locates all the power in one individual. Also locates all of the responsibility in one individual and also locate and makes that individual lonely. And all of the blindnesses that can come up when you don't have someone to bounce ideas off of because you have to sort of keep that distance so that you can have power over them. And so this power to accomplish things with other people all by itself just transforms the ability for everybody who's not right there at the tippy top to have power and contribution and take some responsibility. And it's just much more humane. Yeah, what I'd add to that is that with armored leadership, the argument that's made in the book essentially is that power over, which is coming from a place of armored leadership, isn't real power at all. It, it, it is in a truly transactional sense and definitely in the traditional sense. But as Kate said, what can be a accomplished when power is shared and freely given is so significantly more than one that is resting with one person. And when you look at power from that angle, it's an amazing reminder that when we are coming from a place of power over, it's, it's a highly fear-based, usually insecure place uh, to come from and that real creativity, collaboration, innovation, all of these things that a workplace needs to thrive and to move forward can't really exist because everyone's guarded. And the very definitions of creativity, innovation, new ideas, strategic thinking, these require openness and flow, which in turn require the ability for everyone to participate in the conversation and for everyone to feel like they can make an impact. And to me, that is the the greatest and, and purest application of power over is where no one, not just those in, in charge, are coming from armored leadership. Now, it's easier said than done because we all have our armor ready to go up at a moment's notice because we're human after all. But in reading this book, what a leader can take from it is not that having your armor on is bad. There's no, there isn't a judgment in it as much as the awareness of it and the willingness and the ability to move to a place of daring leadership where power is with and within. Uh, that journey and that process of getting there is where is where the real fun is. So I like that there isn't a judgment of armored leadership so much as um, the, the, the desire to help all of us understand, hey, you might be coming from armored leadership and power over and not really even realize it. And that just starting there, if leaders can read this and connect to where they might be putting up their armor, uh, that's already a big win, I would say, for, for the workplace. Yeah. And, and you're making the argument that 
um, and I can't remember how well, whether this gets directly fleshed out in the book or not, to be honest, uh, that uh, power to, the power to be creative, innovate, design new systems, uh, actually gets opened up by letting down the armored leadership and embracing the power with and the power within, the power within each person and the power to then collaborate actually increases the ability to get things done in a more more effective and innovative way. And I would add the word fun. There's something kind of opens up all of these really amazing what if questions. What if we didn't lead from a from a idea of scarcity, but rather from abundance? What if it was about being learners and not about being right? What if it was about giving gold stars rather than getting gold stars? To me, it's just kind of a, really? We can lead that way? <laughs> an opening up of that mindset and an invite into imagination. It's not easy. And it'd be really great if we could just kind of read this and say, yeah, I'm now going to do this. But keeping in mind the possibilities that are created by leading from a daring leadership position versus an armored leadership position. I mean, it, the word armored just kind of brings to mind that ar an armadillo and how closed up and this hard shell, whereas the daring leadership is here I am and here I am with everybody else and look at all the possibilities. Yeah, definitely. I love that that image of the armor on and armor off and just visualizing it helps us see how much more open and free and at full permission daring leadership is. I, in particular on that point, love Brene Brown's various anecdotes that she shares throughout the book, profiling actual leaders in various different kinds of workplaces, such as traditional corporate ones, technology companies, the military. She has many, many, many examples. And I think one reason I like those is not just because it makes them real and concrete, but because it tells us that even though we might think this is just the way work is, it actually doesn't have to be that way. And I, I'm sure people listening, some of you may be able to relate to this. In doing the work that I do, there is a corner of me that will sometimes rear its head and say, yeah, but one person can't really change anything. This is just kind of the way work is. This is how these structures work. This is not, I don't know, you know, and that part will kind of create up in me. And these anecdotes help remind us that if one leader, just one leader chooses not to be like the armadillo, but to show up freely and fully, that that can have this beautiful domino effect in the broader culture. So actually, one brave leader can make a really huge impact. I particularly love the military stories because for people who aren't involved in the military, it's very easy for the military to show up as the epitome of a power over system. And even in a highly safety conscious, dangerous in real life, like not just on a financial basis, but actual people's lives at stake setting, you can make the difference and between daring leadership and armored leadership. And for me, who did not have any experience with the military uh, until I started reading stories like this and meeting some people in the military who had completely different experiences than my assumptions, having those stories to look to, to go, okay, you can actually have a single decision maker at the top if that is what you need as an organizational structure because you need to have that level of unity because of whatever it is that you're working on, you can do that in a way that is still daring 
and opening up that possibility is incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we talk about kind of all of this rumbling with vulnerability and then we do get to what you alluded to, Kate, that she started all of her work with studying shame. And I loved her anecdote of telling people on a plane, whether she just says, I study shame and how that kind of takes people off guard because it does sound different. Uh, But she really lays out, you know, shame 101, which is the fact that shame is universal. We're all afraid to talk about it. And then the less we talk about it, the more control it has on our lives. And she talks about shame driving two tapes. So these kind of tapes which I know is now an older reference, but these tapes running through our head of never good enough and who do you think you are? So I had mentioned the empathy video and then Kate, you also talked about empathy as an antidote to shame. And the other theme that all of this is a choice, those sliding doors moments and how we choose to respond. How do we choose to show more empathy? There's a couple places in the book where she lists, in this case, she lists six empathy misses. In another part of the book, she talks about what she calls offloading strategies. So things that we might do automatically that get in our way. And I kind of love when she gives us that mirror to hold up to ourselves and shows us these things that we really may think we're doing the right thing. And they're coming from the best of intentions, but she gives us a way of reframing and of looking at it differently and realizing that our intentions don't really matter. (laughs) The way that something we say lands on somebody is what matters. And there's a lot of times where we think we're being empathetic and we're actually not helping the situation. So when you looked at those, what was your most common empathy miss? The one that I catch myself doing the most often is putting on the boots and getting out the shovel and solving their problems for them. This is one I still struggle with, even though as an ICF accredited coach, my training is 100% in not solving problems, asking the questions that open up the possibility for my clients to solve their own problems so that they have access to their own problem solving wisdom. So here I am professionally trained in this and it's still all over my personal life. And it's that sense of, I want it to go away. I love you so much. I want it to go away. Yeah. We don't like to see people feel uncomfortable or upset. Uh, and yes, I think many of the, many of the coaches that we know have gone through that struggle of wanting to, you want to be a fixer. I know that's a big stumbling block when we're teaching basic coaching skills to managers for managers who want to develop their people and just to help them integrate some coaching skills into it. Taking that fixer hat off is a big stumbling block. And yeah, when a friend comes to you and says that something's bothering them, that's a quick reaction. I'm going to interject for a second and say, I starred the block and tackle. Okay, well, you know, how do we get in there and do something similar, you know, solve it, but specifically the block and tackle? Because who is that guy? We'll kick his ass or report him. Not realizing that the person just needs to sit in discomfort, but... I'm choosing to to be pissed off because I feel like that's taking their side and being on their side. But reading that one was was a big like, oh, yep, I do that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for mentioning that one. That's definitely the, the one I fall into as well. And even though 
just to reiterate, we all work in fields where we are trained to be there for people in, in a mode of empathy. However, my protective instinct will take over as a leader and I want to find someone to blame. <laughs> and it's coming from the place of, well, let me empower this person who is coming to me with this issue and saying, you can take this in your own hands and go over there and tell it to their face or whatever the solution might be to solve it. But as you said, Alyssa, if we look at empathy under Brene Brown's definition, where she contrasts it with shame in a very specific way. She says empathy is the antidote to shame because empathy, the fundamental purpose of it is to help people understand they're not alone. That's what someone needs in that moment. Whereas shame thrives in the place of this is you, you're all alone. Nobody understands you. You cause this, other people have it in for you. And any number of other messages that shame can deliver are all about making the person feel totally alone. And then that's where acting out from shame comes, as she describes. Whereas empathy is specifically not about that. It is about saying, I am with you. I am here. I am listening. And I really like the, the metaphor of the well, when someone has fallen into the well. And that distinction between shouting from outside the well, I'm sorry to hear you fell in the well, feel better, see you later, <laughs> but actually getting into the well. Now, it's an interesting distinction, though, between getting into the well and having no idea how to get out <laughs> and getting into the well, but having a clear plan for getting out. I think I, I can't remember now if that was one of the empathy misses or not, but as a leader, sometimes I fall into the, well, I'm getting right into it with this person, and then I find find myself swimming in the same emotions that they are swimming in. And I realize I have not planned for a way out of that well, which is helping no one because now there are two people in the well. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, real empathy is, is letting the person, I'm right here with you. Uh, I understand, but we're going to get out of this when the time is right. I'm not going to force you to get out of it before you're ready. So I really, I really like those visuals that she has in there around what it means to really show up for someone and understand that they're not alone while also not making it about you. Yeah, that really simple re response of, I don't know what to say, I'm just so glad you told me. And I think that's part of what I like so much about how she presents her work is, I'm not just gonna tell you these great concepts, but constantly we're gonna talk about what does that look like? And I'm skipping a little bit because on that theme, that whole idea of kind of what does trust look like and her braving acronym around boundaries, reliability, accountability, vault, integrity, non-judgment, generosity. The whole idea of how do you put these concepts into operation and identify specific behaviors. But I think that idea of I lost trust in that person can be a really easy thing to say, but you can't approach it with that person or rumble with that person about it unless you can actually point to what it is where that breach of trust happened. So that idea of having this trust inventory and say, what was it about? And part of that trust inventory being, was this about me not setting clear boundaries? Was it a reliability issue? Was it an accountability issue? Just having those separate categories makes this really tough concept of trust visible. And I really appreciated that. 
you know, I, this is the second time I've sort of had this thought in this conversation. So I'm going to bring it in here now. One of the things about all of the skills that she points out and the fact that these are things that we can practice doing mean that if we're going to jump into the well with somebody, if we've practiced some of these other skills, we can take them with us. So for instance, the learning to rise or these bravery tools, um, if we can jump into the well with our toolkit and then offer our toolkit in service of getting them out, we're actually being helpful. And for me, this is partly sort of in the difference between daring leadership and what I think of as reckless leadership. And reckless leadership for me is I don't have a plan. I don't have any ideas. I don't even have trust that I have a plan or that I will invent a plan. I just know that I'm supposed to dive into the well. And actually like taking that moment to pause to go, okay, I want to go and demonstrate empathy. I want to be empathetic and we can't get stuck there. What skills do I need to take with me? It's like packing for an adventure. It's like packing for a mountaineering trip. You want a few tools that you take with you in your backpack. Absolutely. And I'm thinking about another metaphor she shares in the book because she has so many beautiful, colorful metaphors around taking tools with you. At one point, when discussing that braving a toolkit, I believe it's in that section, she mentions that when you're going on an adventure, like the one Kate described, she specifically mentioned skydiving, that you actually have to learn how to properly fall and get back up before you jump out of the plane. Don't just blindly go into the well. Don't just recklessly jump out of the plane. Whatever rumbling type of situation you're getting into, whether it is building trust or empathy or just having that tough conversation or delivering tough feedback that you've been avoiding in the workplace, for instance, that you actually have to have thought about what tools am I taking in? And also, if this goes in a way that's somewhat unpredictable, how am I going to get back up? What happens when I fall is as important because it would be irresponsible and, and indeed reckless, as Kate said, to go into that situation not having done that because you're not serving that other person, nor are you serving yourself. Yeah, there are a lot of specific tools that she talks about in terms of rumbling with vulnerability. There's actually a whole hub online, the Dare to Lead hub at BreneBrown.com that I just want to quickly mention in case people are looking for other tools. But I'm curious to know, what are some of the tools that stuck out to you guys from these vulnerability tools? I know that something for me was the Square Squad. Yeah, it's actually not safe to share our deepest vulnerabilities with everybody. There are people and situations where it will come back and haunt us. And we need to have a way of seeing where is there enough trust for the deepest opening. The square squad, literally, she's talking about a one inch square piece of paper in which you write down the names of people whose opinions matter enough to you that you should be taking those ones seriously. And that those are the ones that you should go to to wrestle with the deep pieces, the people that you trust to hold your best vision for yourself safe while you're at your messiest. And uh, it's an inch square and you write them on them and there's not room for a lot of people. There's not room for a lot of names uh, because most of us 
don't have a huge squad of people who hold us at our best. But we don't need a huge squad. We just need a handful. So the square squad, this is in the land of recklessness versus being daring and responsible with your vulnerability. Just to continue on the square piece, this tool comes up a bit later in the book, but I would definitely consider it a tool to take into a tough conversation, a conversation in which you're practicing empathy, or indeed when sharing something deeply difficult or anticipating a difficult response is the four by four breathing technique. I really like this because I personally have a meditation practice and some of you listening may meditate yourself as well. I like it because it's so simple. It takes a heavy concept like mindfulness and boils it down into inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, and hold for four. I like this because some of these conversations we have to go into can be difficult, can be painful, can be triggering. And for us to show up in the right mindset, it helps to have a quick reset tool. And I happen to really like that one. Yeah, it changes your relationship with yourself. If you give yourself permission to actually do a round of that in the middle of a tough conversation, like it's a great tool to do a few times preparing, but also to sort of know that is only 16 seconds. If a conversation can't handle 16 seconds of silence, then there are bigger issues. 16 seconds is plenty to actually sort of at least go through that one time and reset. It's a great tool. Yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of different tools that you could pull out from this book and just practice, just see what it feels like to actually put them in use. You know, the idea of the permission slips uh, is another one. And then using the language of the story I'm making up can really change the way people communicate with each other. If you start adopting that language to say, the story I'm making up is that this is what you need and you need this by this time, then you've just opened an opportunity for that other person to say, actually, no, let's get a little clearer on this. And clear is kind was another thing that really stuck with me. The idea that pushing through some of those assumptions, surfacing assumptions, and bringing clarity into conversations and into requests of each other is actually a way of showing kindness was another big aha for me from this from this book. Yeah, it was for me as well. I think one of the reasons I loved Clear as Kind so much is because in the workplace, leaders at the end of the day are accountable. If we are holding others accountable, we owe it to them to be clear. And I think that's where the kindness piece comes in, that it is, it's unkind for us not to surface assumptions, not to get aligned, not to make sure that our priorities are all aligned, not to make sure that all resources are available, and then say, hey, how come you couldn't read my mind, team? <laughs> because uh, no one can read minds, of course, but we forget that sometimes. And we're unclear because of our own armor and our own fears of confronting that situation directly. So I will agree with you. I really, really like that one. And on the story I make up piece, I still personally struggle with this one around the clearing of assumptions. Because really telling someone that you're holding a story in your head and you want to check out the validity of it is itself a very vulnerable exercise. It is saying, I may not have all the information. What a shift for leaders to make to not start from the place of, I know what's going on here, but rather start from the place of, I might not know everything going on here. There's a story 
story in my head that feels true to me, and it might be true or it might not, help me understand. Come into this playground with me, play with me, and check the validity of it. Tell me what I'm not hearing. So it takes that shift totally away from I have to know everything to I know some stuff, but ultimately my brain is forming a story. Help me out. I really, really like that tool. And it's an exercise in certainly vulnerability, but it's an exercise in humility as well. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we haven't talked about is values. How easy or difficult was it for you guys to narrow this list that she gives down to two? So I have a two-part answer to that question. And the first part is that this last time when preparing for this conversation and I did it again, it was very, very quick. I know what it is that really, really drives me and I found language to sum it up. And I have been looking at clarifying my values actively for the last six years. So it's been an evolving process. The first time it felt very, very strange and the idea that I had to narrow it down to two, I just resisted. I was like, no, five I can do. So it's been a process. Where do you think some of that resistance comes from when you're approaching this for the first time? Because I agree, I, I went through a similar thing where, where you look at it, and you say, how can I possibly choose two? Well, I think it's because lots of them are things that we think are good in the world. And, and in fact, most of that list are things like, yeah, the world needs some of that. Well, yeah, the world needs lots of that. And so actually to look at what are the ones that really drive me to make one decision over another in the hard cases. If I have to decide between fairness and efficiency, do I pick fairness or efficiency? Because I believe that fairness and efficiency are both good. But if push comes to shove and I have to choose weight one more heavily than the other, which do I do? That actually required rumbling with my own limitations, wrestling with the idea that I couldn't have it all, that I couldn't do it all. If I'm choosing these two, does that mean that these 48 other ones or however many are on the list, does that mean that I don't value that? Yeah, for sure. I love what you said there, Kate, that leaders are not usually the most tested when they're having to choose between fairness and unfairness or efficiency and inefficiency, because that's kind of the easy choice. I won't say it's always easy, but it's definitely the easier choice. (laughs) But choosing between two or more things that feel equally important that's where the hard work happens. And to me, this was a relatively difficult exercise. I too have done values work before, not only in my coaching training, but also in my own personal journaling and work that I do in my personal growth, as well as with my team at work. We've talked about values and things. And even so, it becomes a hard exercise. But the way I think about values that may help some of our leaders is when push comes to shove, What's going to matter more than the other things? What's the thing you're willing to fight for? What's the thing you're willing to say, you know what? I'm going to say no to this thing because it matters that much that a project or an initiative be aligned with my values. What are the things that you can no longer operate an autopilot on, but you have to step up and say, no, I actually am taking a stand on this because it matters. There's a line that Brene Brown writes, which is that when we choose to say yes or no to something based on a difficult decision we've made rooted in our values, that we might miss stuff. We might miss seemingly good opportunities or successes 
positive things can pass us by because we made a decision based on our values. But the way she rationalizes that is, if I miss the boat, it wasn't my boat. And I love that sentence because it says that we aren't here to say yes to everything and do everything. We're here to take a stand for the things that matter to us based on our values and everything else. Well, it's, it's somebody else's boat, maybe not mine. I like that a lot. I'm definitely someone who in my leadership style try to be a maximizer somewhat. And this values exercise was a great reality check. Thank you for that. So we've been talking about this book now for quite a while. And I know that the three of us could continue this conversation hours. I'm going to kind of bring us to a wrap up. What do we want to leave people with? What's the think away? I can start. I have two. One is this open-ended question of what does daring leadership look like in your life? So that would be kind of the big picture think away. A smaller one is who's in your square squad? What do you I have, have a think away that builds off of a key concept in the book. And I wanted to share the concept first and then offer the think away. Given that Brene Brown defines empathy in a very specific way, meaning empathy is connecting to the emotions that underpin an experience not connecting to the experience itself. That says that we don't have to have lived the same lives as other people, had the same experiences, come from the same background, or even relate to parts of their identity in order to be able to have empathy for them and to be with them because it's all about the emotions underlying an experience. So that definition actually takes me to the think away that I would offer our listeners, which is what are the opportunities in your leadership and in your life where there may be an opportunity for empathy, an opportunity to connect to the emotions underlying someone's experience. It may be, maybe opportunities that you're missing right now, but that are, that are present. Great. Yeah. Uh, the language of opportunity is sort of where I was going with the think away. One of the big ideas in this book is that these are learnable skills and the way you learn skills is you practice them. And so my think away is what are the opportunities to practice trust, bravery, rising strong, finding the places to dare. All right. The one thing we like to do near the end of every episode is paint a picture for you of what kind of a book this is to help you see where you can leverage it in your life. For that, we like to use the visual of a tree because a tree is symbolic of energy, vitality, growth, ongoing evolution, providing life and gifts to others. The roots of the tree are the foundations, the nutrients, the ideas, the philosophies, the theories, the ways of thinking about what it is to be a leader. The trunk is the backbone, the strategies, the big picture skills, the approach, but more practical than the roots. And then the branches are specific tools that you might need, how to run one kind of meeting or how to be in one kind of organization. There might be twigs or leaves or flowers that are more in the land of art. So with our first book, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown, where on this beautiful tree would we place Dare to Lead? I personally would put Dare to Lead in the category of a roots book, very foundational, helping us understand the mindsets that we can develop as leaders. This book for me was all about choosing how we show up differently in the world, in all of our relationships, not just in the workplace. And so for that reason, to me, it is a roots book. 
I would put this in the trunk category. The distinction between armored and daring leadership, I think of as foundational, but there are so many tactical tools in here that I would like to leave people with the idea that this is a book to dip into, pick out a tool and practice. I also had thought Dare to Lead was a trunk book that has kind of those really strong foundational aspects with the very specific strategies and tools as well. But because it kind of stays in that mindset and strategies, for me, that's what puts it in the trunk category. This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoy the Leadership Arts Review podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can find more information and additional resources at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com and continue the conversation in the Leadership Arts Review Facebook group or on Twitter at leadership underscore arts. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. Music adapted by 4 Impala from Nathaniel Wyburn's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.